Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 62 of the Essential X-Lapsed, and I kind of feel like I'm getting my old cadence back. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I, I suppose, will remain to be seen. Um, well, we're back for a second go-around here. This is the uh, always difficult sophomore offering uh, since our comeback here. The butterflies are still kind of there, just uh, they ain't flapping as hard as they were last time out, and... Uh, Hopefully we're headed in the right direction. Uh, before we get into today's comic, I just wanted to thank uh, the, the handful of folks who reached out to uh, give me a warm welcome back behind the mic. It, uh, you know, I don't want to over-romanticize things by saying, you know, I thought people would forget, you know, because I'm, you know, just some idiot and uh, why would you even, you know, why would you even commit me to memory in the first place? But, uh, no, it's it was a very unexpected and uh, nice welcome back from a handful of uh, great folks i didn't really even i didn't even bother to uh promote the episode at all uh which was kind of a conscious decision um also kind of a you know uh as soon as i finished it yesterday i just kind of want to be you know away <laughs> from the computer for a bit so i didn't want to I didn't want to do uh, a whole bunch of promotion, and I just didn't want to, honestly, I just didn't want to set myself up, you know, so I didn't promote, and still, a few folks found it, reached out, um, this morning, actually, about five minutes ago, I, I finally did put it in our little X-Lapsed Facebook group, which is, you know, on Facebook at X-Lapsed, if you want to go there, um, and I haven't looked to see if anybody saw it yet, but, um, I don't know, it feels like I'm falling back into the swing a little bit uh, quicker than I expected to. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Well, I guess that will uh, remain to be seen. Um, one thing I can say for certain, which is kind of a bad thing, is the issue of X-Men we're going to discuss today. This is during that nebulous, um, you know, X-Men featuring era where I don't know what they were doing. They were just kind of throwing everything at the wall here, trying to do whatever they could to, I don't know, entice uh, re young readers into parting with their diamond two pennies. So let's get on into it here. This is a, well, it's not a solo story, but it's not a team story either. This is X-Men number 47. Had an August 1968 cover date. The story is called, and let me try saying this without biting my cheek like I've done the last three times I've tried to say this title, The Warlock Wears Three Faces. For some reason, between wares and three, I take a big, huge bite out of my cheek. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's uh, self-preservation because, well, the last time we covered a warlock story, and it's not that warlock, and it's not that warlock either. This is the Mahayogi, you know, the other, the, I don't even know if he'd be the third most popular warlock at Marvel. Who knows? Anyway, the warlock wears three faces. Written by Gary Friedrich, and we welcome Arnold Drake of the Doom Patrol fame here. We got layouts by Don Heck, pencils Warner Roth, inks John Tartaglione, letters Artie Simic, edit Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now despite the next couple of issues being really not all that great, uh, they do hold a special place with me because um, Reggie and I were going to cover these in the Cosmic Treadmill due to our uh, fandom and appreciation of uh, the old Doom Patrol, or actually all Doom Patrol, most Doom Patrols, and of course Arnold Drake, co-creator. Um, and to see him writing The X-Men, which is the book that Doom Patrol is most associated with back in the Silver Age, and even, you know, into 
future ages or further ages, more recent ages. We're not going into the future just yet. But um, we wanted to cover this one as just a an interesting look at a writer who we usually just automatically put in that, you know, DC column and having him at Marvel, especially doing a work that is somewhat derivative or at least comparable to his earlier work. Uh, it's going to be a fun time, I think, uh, even though the stories are, well, they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to be anything to write home about. Now, Arnold Drake was the subject of one of our earliest episodes of Weird Comics History. I think we called it Who is Arnold Drake? Uh, this is around the time the Gerard Way uh, Doom Patrol was about to come out, and we were trying to um, just kind of give some context as to what this team was and who the, uh, who the man behind it was as well. And if I have my timelines right, and I very, I very possibly don't, <laughs> I'm not sure, but um, I do believe... This period where Drake is on the X-Men came after he tried to um, unionize the creators over at DC. I think he was the first uh, creator to, uh, to try that, and, uh, well, it didn't work out so well. Uh, Neil Adams would come in shortly after, and uh, oddly enough, he'll be popping into the X-Men book in uh, probably within the next year's worth of issues. So maybe getting a gig on the X-Men is punishment for rabble-rousing. I suppose we'll uh, we'll talk more about that as we go here, but let's get into our story. Uh, first, the cover. Of course, the X-Men are no more. We saw them uh, disbanded by Agent Framus Duncan last issue. And so, today's issue just features Beast and Iceman. And their names are in a font at least two times bigger than the word X-Men. This is another one of those teeny tiny X-Men featuring and then giant blurb Iceman and Beast. Or maybe it's Beast and Iceman. I don't have the cover in front of me. So... We got no Scott, we got no Gene, we got no Warren, so let's get on into it. Now, we open a few days after the forced disbanding of the X-Men. And as mentioned, we are hanging out with Hank and Bobby exclusively today, and they're both deep in thought over these recent and troubling events. Now, they're both quite bummed to be X-Men no more. And they feel like, even though they're both in the same boat, that this has put a bit of distance between them. And uh, that's figuratively speaking, of course, because they're standing, like, right next to one another in just about every single panel of this issue. We learn here that Agent Framus Duncan had the five X-Men disperse across the country, citing that uh, <laughs> this would make them more effective. Because uh, that makes sense, right? You take five teenagers, you space them across 3,000-plus miles of land, and bada-bing, bada-boom, evil mutants are... Uh, and are a threat no more. So, okay, so we're spreading the five X-Men out, and yet Bobby and Hank are still in New York City. Okay, um, so the boys are bumming, and so they decide to check in with their best gals, Vera and Zelda. Meanwhile, at that very moment, the former warlock, again, not that warlock, nor that warlock, and probably not the third or fourth warlock you're thinking about, this is Mahayogi, he's performing some sort of magic show at a nearby theater. In reality, he's hypnotizing everyone in the audience, and has, to this point, been on a tour of various localities doing the same exact thing. Now the boys pick up their dames and they take them to the theater. I mean, what are the odds, right? Well, not so fast, because this be the hottest ticket in the city, and the show is sold out. The pretty young blonde in the ticket booth tells Bobby to try back later, just in case there could be four last-minute cancellations, which, 
come on. Well, I mean, I probably shouldn't say anything because there will, in fact, be four cancellations. Uh, and honestly, that might be the thing about this issue I have the hardest time suspending my disbelief for. Oh well. So, tickets not in hand, the foursome decide to head to the Café Agogo. Which I could have sworn was the Coffee Agogo, but in fairness, it's been the better part of a year since I read an issue with the Beatnik Bar in it. Anyway, inside the theater, Maha Yogi does his thing. We shift over to the Café Coffee A Go Go, where Fat Man is reciting some really, really heavy poetry. In between sips of his coffee, Hank grumbles about how terrible this is. Just then, Johnny Fever saunters over and smacks our beast in the back. You see, anybody who don't dig Fat Man's beats is gonna get beat. Hank straightens his tie and tries to defuse the situation as to not give up his secret identity, but Johnny Fever ain't having none of it. So, Bobby ices up a light switch, which somehow cuts power to the entire cafe. From here, we get way too many panels of Bobby and Hank beating up the no-good beatniks. Once the power comes back on, they lie to the ladies about ducking under the table as soon as the lights went out. Which doesn't surprise them naturally, as they already know that Bobby and Hank are the absolute worst. Back at the theater, well, wouldn't you know it, there were exactly four cancellations, so the guys and dolls can see the Maha in all his yogi glory. The boys instantly recognize him as the Warlock. And of course, they cross paths with the Warlock in X-Men number 30, which we discussed about a hundred years ago back in Essential X-Lapsed episode 40. And so, they sneak off, suit up, and confront the baddie on the stage. Maha Yogi easily uses his mental powers to get the better of the boys. He makes Bobby believe that he's suffocating in his own ice pile. And Hank, well, he... Well, first he convinces Hank that the floorboards on the stage are sticking to the bottom of his feet. And then he just makes him, like, weak and oafish. Like he's clomping around like his feet and hands weigh, you know, tons. And he's just... He's just not in a good way. He also drops a few sandbags on Hank. But to do this, he has to take his eyes off of Bobby. And so Iceman ices up some of the stage lights, causing them to pop, sizzle, and explode. Maha believes this to be sorcery, which... Come on, dude. Um, he holds his ears and begins to cower for some reason. He then, also for some reason, takes the Jewel of Jeopardy out of his headband tiara gimmick that he wears, and he throws it at Bobby. I mean, what? Um, okay, now Bobby ice shields up and deflects the bauble into the master light box, which causes everything to go psychedelic. Which, I mean, the entire theater is flooded with, like, psychedelic paisleys and colors and stuff here. Somehow this only seems to affect the Mahayogi. You know, I mean, there's an entire audience here, not to mention Bobby and Hank, but Mahayogi is the only one who can see the colors, man. Now, with his wits all frazzled, Maha loses his control, or his mental control, over the crowd, and they now see what's really going on. I guess. I mean, all they see, you know, they're snapped back to reality, and they see two costumed mutant children fighting a defenseless stage magician. But, <laughs> they're Team X-Men all the way, so I guess no fear and hate up in this place. From here, Bobby uses his powers in quite a bizarre way. He creates, like... An elongated ice arm with like a hand at the end of it? He kinda looks like a frostbitten Mr. Fantastic at this point. Like it's not just a you know, a a beam of ice, it's a beam of ice with a fist at the end of it. Anyway, 
With this ice hand, he grabs the theater's hi-fi tape console and shoves it right at the Mahayogi. So now, our baddie's being bombarded by the colors and whatever the hell weird sound is coming out of this hi-fi machine. He immediately throws up his hands in surrender, almost begging to be arrested. And so, one panel later, exactly one panel later, he is in fact arrested. You want to know the charge? He's being charged with mystical monkey shots. For real. Anyway, with the day saved, Bobby and Hank pop into their civvies and reconnoiter with the Goyles. It's worth noting here that Vera complains to Vera about the lad's absence. Um, I'm hoping it's just a case of mistaken word balloon uh, pointing arrow carrot thingy. Whoops. Um, Oh well. We wrap up with Bobby and Hank offering to bring the Goyles to the Copa before revealing that they are currently financially embarrassed. So it's back to the coffee shop they go. And that's that. But, well, unfortunately, we ain't done just yet. Because, of course, we're in the era of backup strips, and today's is called I, The Iceman. Written by Arnold Drake, with pencils by Werner Roth, inks John Verporten, letters Joe Rosen, edits Stan Lee. And wow, um, hmm, if we thought the origin stories were kind of on the dull side, I'll get a load of this. This is five or six pages of Bobby demonstrating his ice powers while talking to us, the reader. So we've got ice slides, snowballs, ice boomerangs. We've got ice ladders, which you would think the slide would make redundant, right? He explains that his powers are mental in nature, as he commands the moisture around him in the air, in the ocean, wherever there's moisture, he will uh, be able to control it. He talks about a potential battle with the Human Torch and questions whether or not he could survive in the vacuum of space. And that's really it. It's not much of a story. It's kind of like one of those things, if you're of my age, it'll be like that middle portion of a Marvel annual where they realize they came up like three or four pages short for, you know, the print run, and they just jam some stupid thing in there. It's kind of what this is. Really weak. I mean, it feels kind of like we're just wasting time here. Uh, This one ends with a blurb promising that the next issue will focus on the origin of the angel. It won't, but, uh, well, that's that's what's being advertised. We're going to find that I think... uh, I think last episode, I mean, it would have to be last episode, I've only done the two, but um, I'm pretty sure I said something along the lines of the X-Men being kind of an afterthought in the bullpen, and um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of evidence for that, you know, the faux pas in editing, there are uh, continuity gaffes here, there are also these uh, these next issue blurbs, which are, they ain't batting a thousand, <laughs> you know, um, they're going to be wrong probably just as often as they're right which that's not a good sign (laughs) that's really not a sign that anybody is watching paying attention or or cares about this title and uh well since this book only has you know a year and a half worth of issues left before it goes into reprint purgatory it's probably a pretty good bet that it's uh it might even be below like collector's item classics and marvel tales on the pecking order of a marvel editorial but, as they say, it's always darkest before the dawn, right? Well, we'll, uh, we'll see about that, I guess. So, I mean, we know what's coming after the uh, quote-unquote hidden years of the X-Men. So, we'll get there when we get there. At this rate, we'll get there in about 150 years. But, let's hop into the mutant mailbox here. This is a two-pager. We're back to two pages after, uh, 
after Stan gobbled up one of the pages last issue with, um, I don't know, probably an ad for not brand Ech, which he is very, very proud of for some reason. Anyway, let's get to it. We got Douglas in Pennsylvania who takes X-Men number 44 to task for a sci-fi faux pas. Now in it, Angel runs into Red Raven, and he claims that the islands that they were on look like something out of a Ray Bradbury novel. Well, gentle listener, Douglas would beg to differ. Now he suggests that they might have said Edward E. Smith, John Campbell, A.E. Van Van Vaught, or Edmund Hamilton instead of Ray Bradbury. I'll take your word for it, Doug. Uh, Doug's also annoyed that Red Rave that the Red Raven scene interrupted yet another X-Men versus Magneto brouhaha because we certainly haven't seen enough of those just yet. Now while he's here and he's got pen in hand, he's got a few more bones to pick with Smiley Stan. A. The Avengers don't feel like the Avengers anymore, and he can't even tell who's still on the team. To which I say, wow, come join us in current year, Doug. Please. His second bone to pick is that the Fantastic Four book is suffering because Sue is pregnant. Now, Stan, being the statesman that he is, he apologizes for uh, everything. <laughs> he basically throws himself at the mercy of, uh, of Doug's court here. And he'll, he says that he'll be sending Groovy Gary to sci-fi school, and he hopes that there's like a kindergarten uh, equivalent for, uh, for Gary, I guess. Next up, we got Arnie in Buffalo with more bones to pick. Now, he wants to know why Red Raven's wing gimmick wasn't sufficiently explained. Also, he wants a no prize for pointing out that Cyclops' costume was miscolored in his origin backup strip. To this, stand Mia Culpas, which is to say, he pushes the blame to whoever it was that was coloring the issue. It's a good thing they don't give colorists credit in this age, right? It's kind of too bad they give the editors credit because you'd figure that would be caught after the... Well, I'm not going to say. Anyway, Stan also gets to call Arnie out for not reading the Red Raven story close enough because he says they did explain his wings. So, suck it, Arnie. I couldn't tell you what the wing gimmick was. It's been a long time since I read it, and to be honest, it was a very, very boring story. Next up, Jerry in California. Jerry feels as though the origin of Iceman is a waste of time because everybody already knows that he was bitten by a radioactive ice cube. <sighs> I thought, like, the, the two cute comments were, um, were a product of, like, current year. I, I guess not. I guess, uh, I guess we were still very, very cute as a fandom even back then. Anyway, Stan apologizes and blames this story happening in the first place on his having a drink of a radioactive martini before okaying it. Wonk wonk. Um, next up, Dean Crawford in Buffalo writes his third letter. See also X-Men number 19 and X-Men number 22. Now, Dean is taking the fans to task for believing the X-Men should only fight evil mutants. Now, he compares this to Daredevil only fighting other blind people, which... Okay. Nice try, I guess. Um, he says a lot more, but at the same time, he says nothing. To which I must ask, who does he think he is? Me? Uh, now, Stan replies in kind, using a lot of words to say absolutely nothing. Uh, Bob Evans in San Diego. Uh, that's the sausage guy, right? Um, or the coffee guy. I, I, don't, I know I bought the sausage, and I'm pretty sure I bought the coffee before. Anyway, Bob liked the Red Raven story so much that he might actually renew his subscription to the X-Men when it runs out. Well, okay. He also takes Stan the task for Cyclops' coloring boner, and he thinks the Bobby origin story was stupid, 
as it stands to reason he shouldn't have a secret identity after using his ice powers in public. Now, Stan says that Professor X bathed Bobby's town in a mental bolt to erase their memories of Bobby's icy antics. And he goes on to say, outside the X-Men, the only person who knows that Bobby is Iceman is Agent Framus Duncan. And, you know, if I'm remembering right, I'm pretty sure it was plainly said that uh, the professor did wipe the minds of Bobby's hometown here. I'm, it was probably just a throwaway, you know, bubble, but I'm pretty sure... I remember that, and I don't remember much, but I kind of remember that. Maybe I'm conflating it with all the other times that uh, Professor X robbed people of their memories uh, without uh, without consent. Um, anyway, next up, Jeff in San Jose. He loves the new costumes, and he says that they are, quote, the most. The most what exactly? Well, the world may never know. He also really loves George Tuska. Really? Okay. Uh, he also wants the newly dead Professor X to stay in contact with his young charges via seance. Which I was prepared to crap on, but that ain't the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Now, of course, we with the mutant power of hindsight know that the Professor has faked his death. But I think this would have been a very interesting way to, um, to keep him in the book here. Just have him contact his charges and say that he's doing so from beyond the grave. I think that could have been interesting. Anyway, we have a Make His Marvel here. He says, until the Hulk marries Jean Grey, make his Marvel. Stan promises that George Tusco will be hanging around the bullpen somewhere, probably for the next 700 years. Next, Jim in Florida. He declares that the men from... Oh, God. Are we doing an acronym thing again? Um, he declares that the men from SPAM are after Stan. Now, SPAM is, of course, the Society for Preservation or Prevention of Atrocities to Mutants. And like I said a few moments ago, isn't 1968 too early for this kind of cute fan, isn't it? Anyway, they're after Stan because oh, there was a scene where the Beast's hands were cuffed to his feet? What the hell are we reading here? Stan replies very bluntly and just says, don't feel so bad. So, okay. Thanks, Jim. I, I, oh. You gotta wonder, what letters didn't make the cut? I wonder if this is like one of those things where maybe they're just printing them by the inch. It's like, hey, uh, Stan, we got an inch and a half of space on the letters page here. What should I put in there? It's like, well, find whatever. The first one you have that fits, put it in there. I'm guessing that's probably what this is because, yikes. Or or maybe, uh, maybe the sales on this book are as bad as we hear and maybe nobody's writing in. Maybe maybe the bullpen is pitching in and uh, using relatives' addresses here for uh, for letters. I don't. I really don't know. Let's wrap it up here. We got Gene in Michigan. Now he suggests that Stan has an infatuation with characters sticking their heads in subway trains. Well, there really must have been no letters to the X Men for these to get printed, right? Uh, Gene goes on to suggest that Jack of Diamonds is not an actual mutant, claiming that he got his powers from a lab accident, not unlike Spider-Man. Now, Stan has a... Rep oh, boy. Stan has a hell of a reply here. And, uh... Well, I think we're about to break the, uh, the comics internet here, okay? Stan... I'm gonna read Stan's reply here, verbatim here. He says, quote, As for Jack of Diamonds not being a mutant... We're going to have to color that theory wrong. One doesn't have to be born with special powers to be classified a mutant. So, in a sense, Spidey 
Daredevil, and the Fantastic Four do indeed fall into that category. So you heard it here uh, last. Um, Spider-Man, Daredevil, the Fantastic Four are mutants. How, How about we just forget he said anything, right? I gotta say here, maybe Stan's just trying to stir people up so they actually do write in to complain about this. I mean, he's probably got a stack of no prizes here, just like, please, I'm begging you. (laughs) I'm begging you to write in. I'll send them to you. But on that high note, let's shift it over to the bullpen bulletins page here. Subtitle, More Hysterical Hoopla and Hang-Ups from Your Howlin' House of Ideas. Item. Now, some of these items we're going to cover in the next couple of issues are, um, to me, a sure sign that there just wasn't a whole lot going on. It's basically a listomania of like Stan saying like, hey, I'm looking out my office window now and here are the people I see. And, uh, and you know, that's like rollicking Roy Thomas and groovy Gary and all that kind of crap. It's basically that. It's kind of like my theory with the letters pages here. Like the bullpen page came up an inch and a half short. So he's like, what am I going to talk about? I've already said everything. So in this first item, he introduces us to some of Marvel's writers, all of whom I think we've met already. Uh, Roy Thomas, Gary Friedrich, and Archie Goodwin. Item. Fabulous. Flo Steinberg has decided to leave Marvel. Now, Flo was Stan's, uh, back in the day, I guess you would call her a Girl Friday. And uh, she started working with Marvel slash magazine management in 1963. At that time, she and Stan were Marvel's only two actual staffers. They were the Everybody else was freelance. They were the only two like actual employees of, uh, of Marvel. And she would be paid $65 a week. Her duties included being Stan's secretary. Uh, she would also rattle the cages of artists who were running late with their work. She worked closely with the Comics Code Authority in getting books approved. She was involved in the Merry Marvel Marching Society, probably licked a lot of stamps and a lot of envelopes, and she would also bounce geeks out of the office. So she was uh, truly a Jill of all trades. Now, Marie Severin said that Flo decided to quit Marvel when she was denied a $5 a week pay raise. Wow. Um, Now, she would return to Marvel as a proofreader at some point during the 90s, and she would remain there in some form or fashion until her passing in 2017. A very interesting subject um, that was uh, going to be an episode of the Cosmic Tre- not the Cosmic Treadmill, the other show, <laughs> Weird Comics History. Uh, Flo Steinberg is, um, it's kind of a unique story, uh, especially for the time period that she was uh, involved in. And she would go on to do like underground comics and stuff. It, she had a, quite a storied career in the you know comics milieu that uh, Reggie and I really wanted to explore and uh, investigate and share. But um, hey, maybe we will talk more about flow somewhere down the line here. Who knows? Never say never, right? Uh, item. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, okay, you know, it's been the better part of a year since we've done the essentials, but I'm not rattling off the ranks of Marveldom again. I'm not going through the fearless front facers, and, and I'm not explaining what that means. We've done it before, <laughs> and I'm, I don't feel like doing it again here. Uh, next up, we got Stan's Soapbox here, which it's a... Uh, hmm. Herb Trimpey is transitioning from inker to penciler, and Stan writes about that for like a hundred words. Last but not least, we have the Mighty Marvel Checklist. Uh, the 35 Cent Spectacular Spider-Man number one, still on sale, so please, please buy the damn thing already. 
Uh, not brand ugh, number nine, is still double size, still double priced, and still horrible. Silver Surfer number one is still on sale. It's the greatest origin story ever printed for the second month running. Fantastic Four number 78 sees stuff getting grim for the thing. <laughs> Get it? Uh, Spider-Man 64 is still battling the Vulture. Marvel Superheroes number 16, the all-new Phantom Eagle. And uh, the Phantom Eagle is a World War I ace pilot co-created by our new inker-turned-penciler, Herb Trimpey. Avengers 55 feature the Avengers versus the Masters of Evil. Daredevil number 43 pits him against Captain America. Mighty Thor 155 uh, versus Mangog, still. Captain America number 105 has Cap versus Batrox Brigade. Incredible Hulk number 107 pits the Jade Giant against the Mandarin. Iron Man number 5 promises Tony Stark public enemy number 1. Also, the menace of... Let's see if I can say this right. Cerebrus. Cerebrus. So, I don't know if that's an amalgam of Cerberus and Cerebus. A three-headed aardvark? Fire-breathing aardvark, perhaps? I don't know. Cerebrus. Uh, next up, Submariner number 5 uh, has Namor versus Tiger Shark. Captain Marvel number 5... Begs us to meet the Metazoid. Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. number four, is a Nick versus Scorpio, and Stan says, or he warns, that it's not for the timid. Doctor Strange, 172 versus Dormammu. Sergeant Fury, 57, rescuing the Nisei squad from a Nazi POW camp. They're doing a lot of rescuing from POW camps in that book. Captain Savage, number five, features a counterfeiting plot. Collector's Items Classic 16 and Marvel Tales 16 are reprints out the yin-yang. Now that's where we leave it, but by special request, we're not done just yet here. Um, I mentioned last episode that there was a letter in the letters page, which was a very purple eulogy for Professor X, and I said I wasn't going to read it, but I did get a special request to read it. So uh, thank you, Billy, for that, and um, we're going to get into that right now here, and I just noticed, I'm looking at the uh, letters page right now, the man who wrote this, his last name is Rap. So I don't know if I should. I, I I'm not gonna rap it. I don't know how to rap. I don't have that kind of uh, that kind of cadence. But um, and actually, I'm I'm looking at this now, and I think, I think some of these lines are supposed to rhyme, but they're written in such a way where I don't know if I'm gonna be able to make that work with my mouth. So uh, well, we'll we'll try our best here as we pay tribute to the fallen Professor Charles Francis Xavier. And after about a minute and a half of me clearing my throat, let's get on into it here. He was a kind, good, gentle man. A decent life led he. The X-Men, his students, called him Sir, and they kept the free world free. Mistrusted, mistreated, cursed were they. But they did but, they did but reply. We'll rid the world of evil souls, and surely they did try. He taught them all he could and more. He gave them all he had. Assassins tried to steal this man, and truly they were mad. A sickness came upon his body, the condition it grew red. He saved the world just one more time. Professor X is dead. <sighs> Boy, I'm never going to be the same again. I don't know about you guys. Um, that was that was something else. I, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't actually read it last time. I just kind of like, skimmed it and was like oh this is gonna be a rhymey thing i don't want to do it but in actually reading it wow wow the the true charisma 
of a of that letter hack is uh, on full display. But <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I think that is where we'll leave it for today. Um, you could reach me at all the places you can reach me at um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, weirdcomicshistorygmail.com, Chris is on infiniteearths.com. Whatever's your pleasure is fine by me. But with all that said, I want to thank you all so much for choosing to spend a little bit of your day with me today. And until next time, as, well, not always, um, until next time, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.